Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm uh, Trevor Burris. I'm a research fellow here at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies, who is your host for this afternoon. Uh, when I was in law school, I had this friend who we had many, many classes together, and we'd always debate in, in the class. He was a, a living constitutionalist, and I was an originalist. And one day, and then we took a class together that was about constitutional conventions. It was to reenact, to have the debates about constitutional conventions. And he would say, well, I really think it'd be a good idea if we had this rule in the Constitution. I kept saying to him, okay, well, then how are you going to write that rule and keep people going by that rule if your living constitutionalists take over? Suddenly, if you're trying to write a Constitution, originalism makes a lot more sense because you want to make sure that people adhere to it and not go off the path. I think he became a little bit more friendly to originalism, but never went over the line. But of course, now we now live in a golden age of originalism. And we have two of the biggest scholars here to talk about how their, their view of originalism, both its descriptive and normative capacities. So we're going to start with uh, Mike Rappaport. I will introduce the speakers before they speak. Um, Mike Rappaport is the Hugh and Hazel Darling Foundation Professor of Law and the Director of the Center for the Study of Constitutional Originalism at University of San Diego. He has a JD and a Doctor of Civil Law. That's what this is. I, that was the first DCL uh, <laughs> from Yale Law School and a BA from Binghamton University. He teaches and writes in the areas of administrative law, constitutional law, constitutional history, and legislation. Mike. Thank you. Thank you very much, Trevor. Um, well, John and I are very happy to be here at Cato. I, in particular, have been a long-term supporter of Cato, having first attended Cato's summer camp in 1979, when Roy Childs and Murray Rothbard were teaching there. Today, John and I want to talk about our, our book, Originalism and the Good Constitution, from Harvard University Press. And the book presents a new theory of originalism. We've got an, a new normative defense of originalism in there, and a, a new way of determining the Constitution's original meaning, and a new theory of precedent. And today, I'll present the new normative defense and the new method for determining the original meaning, and then John will respond to some objections and draw out some of the implications of our view. While originalism has often been defended as promoting democracy or clear rules, we believe there's a better defense of originalism based on the idea that following the Constitution's original meaning is likely to lead to beneficial results. So our argument can be briefly summarized, and I'll, I'll do that and then uh, work my way through it. Um, first, good constitutional provisions are extremely valuable since they operate to establish a sort of basic framework of government that produces a variety of benefits. Second, appropriate supermajority rules tend to produce desirable constitutional provisions. Third, the Constitution and its amendments have been passed under appropriate supermajority rules, and thus the norms entrenched in the Constitution tend to be desirable. There is one very significant uh, exception to this idea of one set of supermajority rules that were used that were not appropriate, and that was the fact that there was an exclusion of African Americans and women at the time of the Constitution, and that certainly was not appropriate. But we argue this defect has largely been removed. 
And then finally, the, the fourth argument is that this argument for the desirability of um, the Constitution requires that judges interpret the Constitution based only on its original meaning because the drafters and ratifiers would have used only that meaning in deciding whether to enact the Constitution. And therefore, if the supermajoritarian process is to produce its good effects, we have to follow the meaning that they used, not some modern meaning. Okay, so let me then elaborate on these claims and uh, throw them out. Um, the first one, again, is that there's a strong argument that a good constitution can significantly contribute to the welfare of the nation. So a constitution can establish a framework of government that protects individual rights and ensures democratic decision making and limits government through the separation of powers and federalism and checks and balances. So this is a, a fairly common argument. Um, second, and this is the longest step in, in the argument, there's also a strong argument that appropriate supermajority rules, like those used in the original Constitution to enact the original Constitution and for amendments, generate beneficial constitutional provisions. And in particular, supermajority rules do a better job of, of doing this than does majority rule. So one feature that one wants in a constitutional provisions is that they be supported by a consensus of the nation. Right? If a significant portion of the public strongly opposes a constitutional provision, then the Constitution is not going to be the source of allegiance and unity that it needs to be. That's an important part of its function in a diverse nation. Okay. Majoritarian enactment of constitutional provisions will not ensure consensus support, but supermajority enactment would. Another feature that we want in constitutional provisions de derives from their long-term nature. Right? And the, the thing is, these provisions need to remain desirable over changing circumstances, <coughs> since they cannot easily be eliminated. And the problem is that it's difficult for people to predict the future, because people have a heuristic problem about the future. <coughs> um, they're too disposed to believe that Current trends will continue, which of course accounts for things like stock market and housing bubbles. Um, while supermajority rules don't address this problem directly, they do improve legislative entrenchments in other ways that compensate for this deficiency. So one of the things that supermajority rules do is that they restrict the number of proposed constitutional provisions because fewer, chance, fewer proposals have a chance, a realistic chance of passing, and, and so they're not proposed. And because there are fewer provisions being debated, there's more deliberation about the ones that actually are proposed. So it enhances deliberation. I think much more significantly than this, strict supermajority rules for the passage of, and repeal of constitutional provisions improve the quality of constitutional entrenchments by helping to create a veil of ignorance. Because proposals that are entrenched under supermajority rules cannot easily be repealed, citizens and legislators can't be certain of how the provisions will affect them and their children. 
And hence, they're more likely to consult the interests of all future citizens, since they can't figure out where they're going to be, um, the interests of all future citizens, the public interest, than to determine whether they'll support a provision. So for example, people are not going to know whether their party is going to control the legislature or the executive. And thus, they're going to have an incentive to allocate powers to the president based on their view of the public interest rather than their view about whether or not their party is going to gain control of one or the other of the branches. The veil of ignorance also protects the protection of minority interests and individual rights. Because again, people will not know whether they'll be in the majority or not. They have an incentive to provide protection to minority interests. And so for these reasons, in, in general, we think that strong supermajority rules are likely to overcome the problems that afflict majoritarian entrenchment and to produce desirable constitutional provisions. Now, one feature of our understanding of a good constitution, I think, deserves emphasis here. So, as consequentialists, we believe that the Constitution should establish principles that promote the greatest welfare of the nation. Right? And in our view, that would mean a strictly classical liberal constitution. But in a world where not everyone is a classical liberal, classical liberalism has to be balanced against other aspects of a good constitution. So um, a good constitution should also have the support of the people of the nation. And if people living under a constitution are living under a constitution that they dislike, this will reduce their welfare or their utility as well. And thus, one has to balance the classical liberal constitution with departures to reflect the non-classical liberal views of the people in the nation. Okay. The third step in the argument, we're still in this four steps of, of the argument. <laughs> the third step is that the supermajority rules used for the enactment and amending of the Constitution are appropriate <laughs> ones. Right? So the enactment of the original Constitution required 9 thirteenths of the states, which is approximately about 70%. And even to hold the convention, they needed a, a supermajority of state support for that. So there was a, another threshold they had to pass. And the Constitution itself received you know, significant supermajority support at the convention. So that's enacting the, the, the Constitution. Amending the Constitution requires two-thirds of the Congress, three-quarters of the states, so in both cases of enacting and amending, one needs a reasonable consensus. So our argument for, for the desirability of the supermajoritarian enactment of the Constitution is not merely a theoretical one. We actually also think it accounts historically for the virtues of the Constitution, the actual Constitution. Both the Bill of Rights and constitutional federalism, two features of our Constitution which have been widely praised, were probably enacted only, only because of the need for supermajority support. If a majority of the states could have enacted the Constitution instead of the required supermajority, then the Federalists would probably not have had to agree to a Bill of Rights. And they probably could have forced the Nationalist Virginia Plan on the smaller states. You know, many people view the Constitution as the product of a few great men. But in our view, the greatness of the Constitution is largely the result of this, the distinctive process that enacted it. 
Okay. The fourth step, final step in the argument, is that beneficial judicial review requires originalism because it was the original meaning that was crucial to obtaining the supermajoritarian consensus that makes constitutional provisions desirable. The enactors did not decide whether to support constitutional provisions based on the constitutional understandings of Richard Posner or Ronald Dworkin. Right? Um, they made the decision whether to support the Constitution based on the meaning of the provisions at the time, the original meaning. And thus, we'll only get the desirable content produced by supermajority rules if we give the Constitution its original meaning. Our argument also suggests that supermajoritarian enactment is superior to having judges develop constitutional norms through living constitutionalism. Under living constitutionalism, only a small number of justices generate norms through their decisions. But constitutional lawmaking should involve the broader participation of the people. The Supreme Court's drawn from a very narrow class of society, elite lawyers who work in Washington. But constitutional lawmaking should involve diverse citizens with a wide variety of attachments and interests. Supreme Court lawmaking is by majority vote, but constitutional lawmaking should be supermajoritarian. Supreme Court lawmaking does not usually involve a veil of ignorance because the justices can distinguish earlier cases that they don't like. But again, constitutional lawmaking should involve a veil of ignorance. In addition to providing a normative case for following the original meaning, though, we also, the book also has an argument for how we should determine the original meaning. And there's a well-known dispute among originalists with some favoring original intent of the framers and some favoring the original public meaning of the document. Our book suggests a different resolution of this. We should use the interpretive approach that people at the time would have deemed applicable to the Constitution. If that was original intent, we ought to use that. If it was original public meaning, we ought to use that. And if it was some third thing, we ought to use that. And this approach, which we develop in the book, is called original methods originalism. And we think it's beginning to gain some support amongst originalists. OK, so there's two basic arguments for this approach. One is the normative one that connects up with the normative argument we've been making here. To get the benefits from the Constitution enacted through the supermajoritarian process, you have to use the meaning that people at the time would have used. And to have the meaning that they would have used, you have to use the interpretive rules that they would have used. The second argument for original methods is that um, the original interpretive rules using them is the way to determine the actual meaning of the document. One shouldn't determine it based on one's favorite <laughs> philosophical theory. One has to look at how people would have interpreted it at the time, because after all, the Constitution was written with those interpretive rules in mind. Now, in the book, we really do not investigate in any detail what the original methods would have been, because that would require a whole other book. Uh, but we do investigate enough to conclude that the original methods largely conform to what's today thought of as originalism and don't involve dynamic interpretation. Um, let me just emphasize two aspects of the original methods. Um, two minutes. Two methods, two minutes, no problem. Um, first, one version of originalism tends to read the Constitution as containing abstract provisions and therefore allowing current judges to provide much of the content and the meaning. 
So some people, such as Jack Balkin, try to justify this on the ground that it's desirable to have constitutional change affected through judges. But on, on, under our view, this way of interpreting the Constitution is problematic. To justify that approach, you would have to find that the framers' generation would have employed it, and we don't see any evidence of that. Second, one interpretive rule that I think might be of interest to Cato people is a rule that would interpret provisions not to violate natural rights unless there was a strong evidence that the provisions were intended to do so. Right? So sort of like a clear statement rule. And while there's some evidence for this rule, we do not know if it was widely enough followed to count as an original method. But if there was sufficient evidence for this rule, or if there is sufficient evidence for this rule, it'd be a significant result. Because what it would mean is that natural rights would be reflected in the Constitution, even where the text did not expressly protect those rights. OK, well, let me stop here and hand it off to, to John. Hopefully, that was 15 minutes. Thank you, Mike. John McGinnis is the George C. Dix Professor of Constitutional Law at Northwestern University School of Law, a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School, where he was the editor of the Harvard Law Review. He also has an MA degree from Balliol College, Oxford, in philosophy and theology. He clerked on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. From 1987 to 1991, he was Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Counsel. And before this book, he is the author of Accelerating Democracy, Transforming Government Through Technology. John? Well, thank you very much. And thanks very much to Cato for inviting uh, us. I'm going to have the, uh, Mike made the affirmative case, I'm going to try to deal with some of the possible objections, and then end talking about uh, how originalism can help create a good constitutional culture. Uh, well, I think I'm going to deal with three possible criticisms. One is the absence, which Mike's already noted, of Afro-Americans and women from the original constitution-making process. Then is a very familiar objection, the dead hand objection, and finally, the question of, well, uh, how, why would the Constitution uh, developed so long ago still be good, even if the process was good back then? Uh, in some ways, I think the most serious objection to um, originalism is the absence of African Americans and women in the original Constitution-making process. And surprisingly, very few originalists have addressed that. And we do so at some length in the book. Um, and our conclusion is that although that was a serious problem then and raises serious questions about how one might inter interpret the Constitution of the 19th century, today the problem has largely been corrected or we can't really do better. Because what, well, first of all, we begin with the theoretical question, what can one do if there is a defective supermajoritarian process? Well, first one could simply abandon the Constitution and enact another with a, a more inclusive electorate. Second, one could purport to enforce the Constitution, uh, but attempt to correct the problems under the guise of interpretation. And third, one can enforce the imperfect Constitution, even as it is, even though it has uh, that, this uh, supermajoritarian defect. Now, I think that is a serious issue, how one would have dealt with that in the 19th century, when there were no constitutional corrections 
But the basic problems, the basic defects that we think flowed from the absence of African-Americans and women in the constitutional pro uh, process have been corrected by the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th Amendment, and the 19th Amendment, which has, has really meant that um, uh, African-Americans and women have the rights of white um, uh, Americans at the time of the framing. So it largely uh, reflects, uh, gives them uh, similar rights. Now, to be sure, there could be some remaining defects. Maybe other kinds of provisions would have been uh, still enacted. But the question is, as, as welfare consequentialists, well, how do we balance that? Well, it's very difficult uh, to suggest that we should go to a whole new constitution. I mean, that would have a lot of uh, uh, uncertainty involved in it. And it'd be very damaging, we think, to our constitutional culture to try to make constitutional corrections under the guise of uh, interpretation, given that the defects have been largely uh, remedied. So that's our first uh, point. Our second one is to deal with a very old objection of the Constitution, the dead hand objection, that uh, the Constitution is uh, a dead hand. It makes it hard for majorities to enact their current preferences. I think our view of that is that at least in its unnuanced form, the dead hand objection is not a serious objection to our Constitution. It's an objection to constitutionalism. Uh, any legislation is going to, uh, if it's going to be constrained by the Constitution, is going to be constrained by decisions in some sense of the past. And so the dead hand doesn't make a lot of sense in that sense. We try to make deal with some more nuanced objections. Well, do the framers have a lot of advantages over us because it was much easier for them to put things in the Constitution uh, than it was for the current generation? And as Mike has suggested, there was a serious supermajoritarian process to make the original Constitution, just as there's a serious supermajoritarian process today. In some sense, there had to be a call of the convention. Uh, there had to be a uh, very close to a two-thirds vote of the states uh, uh, to uh, enact the convention, very much similar to our current rules for amending the Constitution for uh, two-thirds of, um, uh, 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 of, of the Senate and House in the usual form and three-quarters of the state. So we don't think there was a tremendous formal advantage. Now, you might think there was an informal advantage, a sort of first-mover advantage, but that's inevitable in a world where uh, time goes one way, and we actually reap the advantages, of course, of some of the settled uh, stability that the framers' generation uh, gave us. So we don't think that's a very serious objection. Finally, let me deal with what I think is a serious objection. Well, maybe these, the, the supermajoritarian process was great for creating a constitution then, but it's a very old constitution, and so it doesn't work in the new world we have today. I think that's a very serious and sort of familiar objection to the constitution. But not surprisingly, because we think the Constitution came from a good process, it deals with the fact of constitutional change. The framers never forgot it was a Constitution they were creating, and so they built in ways of change. And so let me talk about the ways they build in for beneficial change in the Constitution. Well, one way, of course, is federalism. Uh, the states are free to do an enormous amount of experimentation uh, to react to social changes. There are some constraints in the Constitution, but there aren't uh, really a huge number of them, and that can have tremendous benefits, indeed, to liberty. 
I would, for instance, argue that uh, benefits to rights of sexual autonomy have largely come not from the Supreme Court, but from the process of federalism, that people who, in, who did not like, who had different uh, sexual mores from uh, their own uh, jurisdictions have migrated to uh, urban areas of the United States and agitated and written about it and showed that it was quite uh, possible to have a society with a more diverse kinds of sexual arrays and still have a perfectly stable and flourishing society. And so federalism, I think, has really been a source of great strength, even in the rights area, as people are able to migrate and there's a competition uh, among the states. Uh, but even uh, the federal government allows, uh, federal constitution allows substantial, although not unlimited, rights to uh, the federal government uh, in uh, making change. And the reason it's done, the reason that I think works, is the uh, Constitution's authorities to the federal government are, are often framed as matters of principle. For instance, the Commerce Clause allows Congress to regulate interstate commerce. And as there's more commerce, Congress's power naturally expands, not because of the meaning of commerce changes, but because there's simply more interstate commerce. The final way, the uh, uh, way of dealing with constitutional change, of course, is the constitutional amendment process. The framers rejected the idea that the Constitution could not be amended. And there is an amendment process that I think is crucial to constitutional change. Now, it's often argued that the constitutional amendment process is inadequate to address constitutional change because it's too hard to pass amendments. Uh, but I think we think that has it backwards, uh, and that and the, the argument therefore is we have to have non-originalism to deal with constitutional change. We think it's backwards that it's actually non-originalism that has really uh, 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 eroded and at least for some period of time almost destroyed the constitutional amendment process. It's the opposite of that, and I think it's an important argument that we make in the book. Uh, about that. And the argument is fairly straightforward that if the Supreme Court decides it will update the Constitution whenever it thinks uh, the Constitution is out of date and a substantial number of people think uh, that the Constitution needs to be updated, there'll be no reason uh, uh, to have an amendment process. And moreover, it'll make people suspicious of the amendment process as just giving the court another blank check from which they can update. And we, I think, have historical evidence for this. Throughout the 19th century, throughout in the early 20th century, we had a very important transformative constitutional amendments, the 13th, the 14th, the 15th Amendment, but also uh, the, the 16th Amendment, the income tax, the 17th Amendment, uh, rights, uh, the direct election of senators, the 19th Amendment, rights of women to vote. And some of these amendments... Uh, were uh, voted against the vested interests of the people who were voting on them. It was largely male legislatures that gave uh, the right of, uh, of women to vote. It was the state legislatures that gave up their power to select senators that, because that had to be passed through uh, them as a constitutional amendment. And so this seems to be us tremendous evidence uh, that uh, the constitutional amendment process can work when originalism is working well. Contrast that when, when uh, living constitutionalism comes to the fore after the progressive era. Then the court changes the constitution and the amendment process dies. 
that I think is clear from the New Deal. Uh, there became an expectation, a view of most people, that the federal government needed more power over economics, but it didn't happen through a constitutional amendment, but there's the decisions of New Deal justices. I think it's even clearer with respect to the Equal Rights Amendment. There, the court, I think, anticipated uh, uh, certain uh, equal rights for women uh, decisions, and that took, to some degree, the winds out of the sail of the Equal Rights Amendment. But even more importantly, I think, uh, it was came after the Warren Court, when the Warren Court had been sort of consciously non-originalist, and that makes people very wary of giving the court more power by passing another amendment. It's sort of straightforward. If, if courts are going to enforce contracts according to their terms, well, it's going to be much less likely to enter into contracts. And so that's the way that originalism uh, the, uh, is crucially intertwined with the amendment process. And so that's what I'd really like to end on and end on that importance for the constitutional culture. It's not possible, in our view, to have an attractive originalism without the amendment process, because one needs to be able uh, to change the Constitution. On the other hand, the amendment process won't work without originalism, because that will simply give an alternative to a beneficial way of making constitutional change. And so one way of understanding the slogan of our book is we think that people should walk with a banner uh, which says, uh, no originalism without the constitutional amendment process, and uh, no uh, const effective constitutional amendment process without originalism. And what ultimately that banner reads, it means we the people rule, not we the elite judges, because ultimately changing the Constitution is still in the hands of we the people. And I think that's an attractive vision of a constitutional culture. It makes the uh, people themselves the fashioners of their own constitution, and it has a feedback effect on originalism. It means that uh, people understand that it's important to try to figure out the original meaning of the constitution, actually to protect the power of the people themselves to change the constitution uh, if they need to in important ways. One other aspect of this constitutional culture that I think we're already observing in the legal academy. One thing, once people become originalists and understand they're not updating the Constitution, it can't be easy to update the Constitution through uh, mechanisms uh, outside the amendment process, there becomes a lot more study of what the original meaning of the Constitution is. And no one who, uh, I've been in the legal academy for 25 years, We've never had a richer discussion of the ways of finding original meaning and actually richer discussion of the meanings of particular clauses uh, than has happened. And that really is an advantage, not only abstractly, but to judges, because there's always going to be a division of labor between scholars and judges. Judges have the constraints of time, uh, uh, and uh, uh, it's very important that there be a culture of originalism in the legal academy to help judges and also to critique judges uh, when they get it wrong. So uh, this new culture, I think, makes originalism a much more effective uh, force. So I think in, the, in, in conclusion, I, think I just want to say that I think originalism really respect, has, a, has an understanding that the Constitution is a multi-generational enterprise, in some sense a Burkean enterprise, 
of the living and the dead and the yet, yet unborn. We uh, uh, make uh, new provisions under the constitutional amendment process, and we do that precisely by respecting uh, the work of other people who have, who have made constitutional provisions under this beneficial process that the framers have bequeathed to us. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, John. And now uh, for commentary on the presentation, uh, first we will have uh, Brianne Gorod. Uh, it's a, the Constitutional Accountability Center, a friend of ours here who we've been filing many uh, gay marriage briefs with. Um, she's the appellate counsel there. She joined CAC from O'Melveny and Myers, where she was counsel in the firm Supreme Court and Appellate Practice. From 2009 to 2011, she was an attorney advisor in the OLC and the U.S. Department of Justice. She also served as a clerk for Justice Stephen Breyer, a clerk for Judge Robert Katzman on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Cir Circuit, and a clerk for Judge Jed S. Reikoff on the District Court for the Southern District of New York. Her academic writings have appeared in the Yale Law Journal, the Duke Law Journal, Northwestern University Law Review, and others. She received her JD from Yale and her MABS from Emory University. Brianne? Thank you. Thank you, Trevor, and, and thank you to Cato for hosting today's discussion and inviting me to participate. I want to begin by saying how much I enjoyed the book. It's good to see such a serious treatment of originalism, and I think the book does a really excellent job of connecting its views on the theoretical justifications for originalism with its ideas about how originalism should operate in practice. The book obviously covers a lot of ground. There's a lot of things that one can discuss. So my remarks today, I'm going to focus on, on three things, two things that I very much like about the book, and then one thing that I found a little bit more puzzling. So to start, I very much agree with the book that constitutional enactors can design a constitution to endure. As the book puts it, quote, many constitutional provisions set out long-term principles that can be applied to changing circumstances and thus are entirely appropriate for long-term matters. I couldn't agree more, and that's, that's one reason why my organization, the Constitutional Accountability Center, believes that the Constitution is a fundamentally progressive document. We believe that although the meaning of the Constitution does not change, its open-ended provisions establish general principles. And those principles are enduring. They don't change over time, but their application can change as circumstances change. And once you recognize that some constitutional provisions establish general principles that require you to take into account present circumstances and context, it's obvious that the Constitution can be both enduring and flexible. I think last term's decision in Riley v. California, the case about warrantless cell phone searches, is a prime example of this. Of course, the framers couldn't have conceived of the modern cell phone. We couldn't have conceived of it just a decade ago. But we know from the text of the Constitution and the history of the Constitution that they also couldn't, that they could conceive of significant intrusions on personal privacy. And they didn't believe the police should be able to search or intrude on a person's privacy without some individualized suspicion of wrongdoing. And that's why the Supreme Court held in a strong, unanimous decision that the police can't generally search the digital contents of a cell phone without a warrant. So as I said, the enduring yet flexible nature of the Constitution is one reason we believe it's a fundamentally progressive document. Another reason leads me to one of the things that I very much, the other thing that I very much liked about the book. And that is its emphasis, as John was talking about, on the amendment process, and particularly how the Reconstruction Amendments helped address one of the process defects in the enactment of the original Constitution. I think sometimes people are too quick to focus on just the original text and the original framers of the Constitution, and they forget how much the document has been changed and shaped and improved 
by the ways in which it's been amended since 1787, the Reconstruction Amendments, the 16th Amendment, the 19th Amendment. I think that a emphasis that the book gives to these amendments and the amendment process in general is particularly <laughs> valuable now as we approach the 150th anniversary of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, what some have called our nation's second founding. And so I hope the book's attention to the amendments and the amendment process will help spur further discussion and study into those amendments themselves and how they define the larger meaning and significance of the Constitution. So those are two things that I very much liked about the book, and there are, of course, many others. But where I want to focus my remarks, and what I found surprising about the book, was the extent to which it points it seems like it was trying to claim defeat from the jaws of victory. The book suggests early on, and then states quite explicitly later, that originalism isn't the dominant approach to the Constitution now. The final chapter, in fact, promises to, quote, imagine a world where originalism is the dominant view of constitutional jurisprudence. And I found this surprising because I would have said that we're living in that world. More and more we see individuals on both the left and the right embracing the text and the history of the Constitution. As I said, my organization, the Constitutional Accountability Center, is a progressive one. But we believe in giving primacy to the Constitution's text and its history. And do we regularly file briefs in the Supreme Court and the Courts of Appeals that look to the structure and the, and the text and the structure of the Constitution? that looked to its enactment history, and also the broader historical context that surrounded its enactment. Um, as Trevor mentioned earlier this month, and repeatedly now, we have filed a brief with Cato um, explaining how the text and history of the 14th Amendment support a broad equality guarantee for all persons that make same-sex marriage bans unconstitutional. <laughs> and we are far from alone in this. Of course, there are important scholars. The book discusses Akhil Amar and Jack Falcon. And you know, I'll bracket for a moment the question the book raises about whether they, and Jack Balkan in particular, are truly originalists. But I don't think anyone would deny the importance that they both attach to the original meaning of the Constitution. And there are many other progressive scholars, even ones who would not ter term themselves originalists, who look to the Constitution's text and its history to understand its meaning. And this is a phenomenon that's hardly limited to the Academy. We see this, in fact, on the court itself. At her Supreme Court confirmation hearing, then Judge Sonia Sotomayor, described the Constitution as immutable. She explained that one must look to its words to interpret it and give it meaning. And she stated the document is timeless by the expression of what it says. Then Solicitor General Lady Kagan made similar remarks at her own confirmation <clears throat> hearing, calling the Constitution an enduring document and saying this should be interpreted first and foremost by looking to text and to history, as well as to traditions and precedent and the principles embodied in that precedent. And if you don't put a lot of stock in what the justices say at their confirmation hearings, you're seeing this in their opinions on the bench as well. I think the court decision last term in NLRB v. Canning, the recess appointments case, is a prime example of this. Mike, of course, deserves a lot of credit for focusing uh, the scholarly community and the practitioner community on the text and the history of the recess appointments clause. And we may not agree about what the recess appointments clause means, but I would hope that we could agree that the terms of the debate have really shifted. In the briefs that were followed by the court, and in the opinions from the justices, everyone was laying claim to the Constitution's text and history. Even Justice Breyer, in his opinion for the majority, laid claim to the Constitution's text and history. And Justice Breyer is not known for being an originalist. In fact, he is so known for not being one that many people saw the case in kind of the familiar frame. Justice Scalia versus Justice Breyer, originalism versus pragmatism. But if you look at Justice Breyer's opinion, he started and began with the Constitution's text and history. He began with the framers, and he ended there as well. And that wasn't even the only time last term that Justice Breyer recognized the importance of framing error history. He looked at it as well in his ascent in McCutcheon v. FEC, the campaign finance case, 
looking to the reason the framers adopted the First Amendment in the first place. Justice Ginsburg, too, has embraced the Constitution's text and its history, even proclaiming herself an originalist. She did this in her concurrence in the Affordable Care Act case, looking to the scope of the Commerce Clause by looking to framing airing history and why the framers abandoned the Articles of Confederation in favor of the Constitution. And more recently, she did this in her dissent in Shelby County v. Holder, the voting rights case. Now, I, I, I understand that Mike and John probably wouldn't describe all these people as originalists, but I think in the book's focus on what divides originalists and uh, different brands of originalism, the book loses sight a little bit of, of just how much <coughs> unites them and the significant extent to which scholars, practitioners, <coughs> and judges of all ideological stripes now look to the Constitution's text and its history to understand its meaning. If there's a sequel to the book, and I very much hope that there is, I hope the authors will take a more concrete look at how their original methods originalism compares to other variants of originalism when it comes to interpreting actual provisions of the Constitution. I think this would be helpful in part because I think it would help make more concrete how original methods originalism works in practice, but also because I think it would further elucidate just how much space there really is or isn't between these different approaches to the Constitution. <clears throat> I think one of the benefits of the growing consensus that we need to pay attention to the Constitution's text and to its history is that we can spend less time debating labels like living constitutionalism and originalism and more time debating what the Constitution actually says and means. And so I look forward to hearing more about what original methods originalism has to offer on that score. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Brianne. Uh, I'll be interested to, to hear, as you said, whether or not they think that that is actually originalism, but we'll see. Uh, <laughs> come, uh, bringing up, uh, finally, for our final commentator is my boss, mentor, and friend, Roger Pallon, who is the founder and director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies. Prior to joining Cato, Roger held five senior posts in the Reagan administration, including at State and at Justice, and was a national fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. In 1989, the Bicentennial Commission presented him with its Benjamin Franklin Award for Excellence in Writing on the U.S. Constitution. In 2001, Columbia University School of General Studies awarded him its Alumni Medal of Distinction. He holds a BA from Columbia University, an MA and a PhD from the University of Chicago, and a JD from the George Washington <coughs> University School of Law. Roger. Well, thank you, uh, Trevor. As uh, Ronald Dworkin said, uh, we're all originalists now, <laughs> from Scalia to Ginsburg, and so I guess we need a closer definition of originalism. Let me uh, begin by um, saying that this is a fine book, and those of you who want to sink your teeth into a book that sinks its teeth into some very complex constitutional issues could do worse than to uh, dive into this book. Uh, I commend it very strongly. I'm going to refer to John and Mike as the authors for simplicity. Uh, my role here however, is as, as a friendly critic, uh, because as an originalist myself, I agree with a great deal of what's in this book. But there are different strains of originalism, as Brianna just suggested, uh, and perhaps more precisely, of rationales for using originalist methods for interpreting the Constitution. I come from the natural rights strain, for example, which, like the authors, grounds the Constitution's legitimacy in both procedural and substantive considerations, but differs in the latter by appealing to non-consequentialists 
not to the consequentialist considerations the authors rest their normative case on. I'll return to that point shortly, but let me begin on a point of agreement. I quite agree with the authors that, and I quote, a constitution enacted pursuant to appropriate supermajoritarian rules is likely, not necessarily, but likely to be a good one and that securing the benefits of such a constitution requires that it be interpreted using originalist methods, end quote. And they go on first to define a good constitution as one that promotes the welfare of the people and second to creating a constitution through a strict supermajoritarian process provides the best method for discovering and enacting a good constitution. That discovery process is a variation, perhaps, of the revealed preferences thesis of economics, and so it's not, strictly speaking, a consequentialist account of a good constitution. But insofar as the account of a good constitution does turn ultimately on the more clearly consequentialist criterion of promoting the welfare of the people, it suffers from all the problems that have ever afflicted conse consequentialism. First, as Henry Sidgwick discovered at the end of the 19th century, it's quite impossible to do that utilitarian calculus in other than a seat of the pants way. And second, public welfare is an aggregative, not a distributive notion. The welfare of individuals who find themselves in the super minority find no comfort in this account. They find themselves put to a choice between leaving and coming under the will of the supermajority. Not that the authors are not aware of those problems, mind you. Indeed, they offer us explicitly, not an ideal constitution, but a genuinely good one and even a pretty good one because they're writing for the living, uh, they're writing for and living in the real world. But I start with these problems because I believe there's a better solution to them than this account offers, based as it is on will, not reason, on supermajoritarian political consent. Hold that thought, I'll return to it. Let me suggest then that what we have in this book is the latest, most theoretically sophisticated iteration of the project begun at Yale in the early 1960s by Alexander Bickel and later carried into execution by Robert Bork and many other conservative critics of what they saw as the judicial activism of the Warren and Berger courts. Indeed, a principal a target of this book is the idea of a living constitution, or as the authors put it, of the practice of judicially updating the constitution. Bickle was an early critic of that practice, pointing to the counter-majoritarian difficulty of rule by the courts and commending the Supreme Court's passive virtues. Here, too, the virtues of judicial restraint run throughout this book, albeit perhaps in a less restrained version than we find in Bork and other conservatives. I say perhaps because in truth, this book treats its subject at such a high level of abstraction that it's often unclear exactly how the authors would, authors would expect the Supreme Court to properly decide a variety of cases. I'll conclude in a moment with questions along those lines. But I want first to note a striking anomaly about the thesis. As I said earlier, I quite agree with the authors that a constitution enacted pursuant to appropriate supermajoritarian rules is likely to be a good one. Pursuant to that insight, the authors are crafting a theory about good constitutions generally. 
But they're also quite clear that, and I quote again, their main purpose is to justify following the original meaning of one particular good constitution, that of the United States. Yet the U.S. Constitution was created by anything but a supermajority. It was drafted by an elite, and it was ratified by not even a majority, much less by a supermajority, and those bound by it, given the limited franchise at the time. Indeed, one could add that when the franchise was much broader by the early 20th century, the supermajority gave us the 16th, 17th, and even the 18th Amendments, which many of us believe did not promote the welfare of the people. Perhaps one could say, in defense of the authors, that this is the exception that proves the rule. But it does bring us to a thread I left hanging earlier, the positivist process project that runs from Bickle and Bork through McGinnis and Rappaport, for all its normative claims, is rooted ultimately in will as its normative foundation, which is fine for giving us positive law, but will not ultimately justify that law. For that, we have to turn, as did both the founders and the framers, to reason, not will. As the Declaration of Independence implies when it says that to secure these rights rooted in reason, uh, the uh, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers or means toward that end from the consent of the governed. Reason and will are thus there conjoined to give us legitimate government. To be sure, that approach, the approach of the founders, rests on what the authors call a thick theory of the good. Actually, it's a thick theory of rights, not to be confused with the good. And they say that such a theory, whether of libertarianism or socialism, is not appropriate as the basis for a constitution in a pluralistic society in which people hold differing views about the good or justice. Again, the good and justice need to be distinguished as good libertarians do. But more to the point, whether or not appropriate as the basis for a constitution in a pluralistic society, a thick theory of rights is the basis for our constitution. In his Lochner dissent, therefore, Justice Holmes was dead wrong. The constitution, our constitution, is not neutral as between economic systems. It recognizes property and contract not socialism. Thus, the founders solved the problem of providing us with a good constitution for, plurist, for a pluralistic society by giving us a constitution that gave just enough power to the government to enable it to protect our rights, plus provide us with limited public goods narrowly defined, while leaving us otherwise free to be capitalists or voluntary socialists as we pleased, but not free to compel socialist arrangements as it does today. So the question arises, have the authors given us an account of the U.S. Constitution or of post-New Deal constitutional law? More precisely, does this account give us any insight about how we went from a constitution designed for limited government as envisioned by the Declaration to the Leviathan we have today, which from the New Deal on seems to have reflected at least a majoritarian and perhaps during the New Deal itself, even a supermajoritarian consensus, yet a political order that is utterly inconsistent with the constitution as originally understood. More precisely still, just where do the authors stand concerning as they are, concerned as they are with judicial updating on such decisions as Lochner, Myers v. Nebraska, Pierce v. Society of Sisters, Griswold v. Connecticut, and Lawrence v. Texas. And regarding interpretive methods, 
The authors write that, and again I quote, the meaning of the Constitution that a supermajority of the enactors approved as beneficial should be determined using the interpretive methods that the enactors would have deemed applicable to the Constitution. Does this mean that the hocus-pocus methodology that came from Caroline Product's infamous footnote 4 should be abandoned? I hope so. To be sure, the authors wrestled throughout with the problem of unconstitutional precedent, which is a very real practical problem. But I wonder, in conclusion, whether their theory is up to the task of solving it for having focused so much on the interpretive process as opposed to the Constitution itself. The problem of the Borkians is that they read the document as instituting a vast sea of democratic authority, and so they focused on judicial methodology toward securing that vision. I fear our authors have done the same, for they write that the Constitution, and again I quote, allocates the great majority of the policy decisions to the states and to the federal government's political branches. That's modern constitutional law. It's not the Constitution. Thank you. Okay, well, sit down, it's fine. Um, yeah, so uh, well, brief comments from our authors here on the well, we want to thank both Brianne and Roger for, for um, very useful uh, comments. Um, just a few brief words. So, so um, concerning what, what Brianne has said, um, so, th so there's a sort of um, good side and the bad side <laughs> of, of um, uh, the world we're living in now. I think, you know, if you, if you compare the world, let's say, to 25, 30 years ago when originalism just wasn't taken seriously, it's an unbelievable change that, that we live in now. Um, you, you, um, even people who are clearly opponents of, of originalism, like Justice Breyer, um, feel the need to, to um, seem to take it seriously. Um, and uh, there's this effort of <laughs> we're all originalists now. Um, that said, you know, the, 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 so, so that's great. And that, that makes it a lot easier to be an originalist. Um, the problem is, is that now we've got different kinds of originalism, right? So, so the debate is now about what kind of originalist we're going to be. Um, that's an advantage. And I think in, in, in some sense, that's, that's an improvement because now the terms of the debate are narrower, right? There's a constraint. We can actually talk about what the original meaning is and presumably have more likely possibility of someone being shown to be mistaken as opposed to someone just coming in with their, their, their political views. Um, that said, I guess I think a lot of what goes under the banner of, of, of originalism these days is, is um, not really originalism. Um, we've got an article addressing uh, Jack Balkin and this type of thing, which we call the abstract meaning fallacy, where we think there's a, a desire to read constitutional provisions abstractly so as to allow um, uh, judicial updating, if you will. And I think the Noel Canning case is, is a sort of example of that. Justice Breyer, who, as I noted, is, is, is no real originalist, um, he labored hard looked at all the materials to conclude that there was ambiguity, um, right? He, he's like the judge in, in Lon Fuller's Spelunkian Explorers whose favorite part of the statutes were the gaps. Um, 
And then, you know, once, once he found the, the ambiguity, he, he, he could go off in, in, in different directions. So um, I think, you know, we're, we're in a better world, but, but uh, <laughs> I don't think we're, we're um, in the originalist world yet, but we're, but we're getting there. Um, maybe I'll, I'll turn it off to John there, and then if, you know. I'm sure, let me just say two, two things very briefly. One to Brian, then the other to Roger. The Brian point is that we were right, I think one way in which we do not have a sufficiently originalist world is, and this, I'm sorry, this, um, this uh, allows us to speak a little about precedent. We are originalists who believe in precedent, but think, and if you look at Supreme Court cases, I think one would have to agree that often the Supreme Court just a, is really very precedent heavy. Its first question isn't what the original Constitution means, but what is in the U.S. report. So I don't think we've actually come to, in our view, towards an originalist world where precedents, to be sure, are important, but are in some ways the exception, and we suggest some precedent rules, that show that originalism is so, uh, it should be more important and more operative in the courts today than it is. So I think that's an important point that may not have been gotten from our remarks in chief, that we have a lot about the relative importance of originalism over precedent. Now, Roger said a lot of very interesting things. One thing I would respond is I think it is a mistake to see our book as in the context and this long line of trying to constrain the judiciary. At the beginning of our book, we're very clear that we don't think the argument for originalism, which may be Justice Scalia's still chief argument, that it c creates rules that constrain the judiciary is a very good one. Well, it's not a good one. I mean, what if all the rules constrain the judiciary and all the rules are really terrible rules? That's not a very good argument for originalism. Our argument for originalism is not that at all. It's that the rules are actually good ones. And so I think we move whatever one else one thinks about the book very, very sharply from the Bork Bickle tradition. Our, uh, our um, argument is that the Constitution is a good one. Now, the and, and it does encompass a lot of natural rights. Now, the question of how, how, much, how far it encompasses that, well, that's a hard question of originalism. That's, not, that's a question of you have to decide clause by clause in interpreting the Constitution. I don't think it can be decided a priori. Once one's specific commitment is to interpreting the law as the law originally meant, that's the, that's the central question that we're trying to illuminate, not the question of, what, of how far the Constitution does or does not instantiate a set of natural rights. Um, one, one quick little point to, to, in response to Roger. So Roger, sorry. So Roger asked, how would we decide a whole bunch of different cases? And that's a fair question, although it's not really something we, the book isn't really about how particular cases get decided. I will say, so since he raised it, and since I think it's such an important issue, is those questions tend to be about the 14th Amendment. I think the 14th Amendment is still, um, it, it, it's an unfortunate but a significant fact that we don't have fully acceptable understandings of the 14th Amendment. Um, part of the reason for that is part of is part of what we call in the book the tragedy of non-originalism. So we so since especially um, uh, academic law has been in place in the in, in beginning in the part of the 20th century, um, the Supreme Court has mainly been interested in non-originalism, and as a result, the focus of scholarship hasn't been on the original meaning. 
It's only been in the last 20 to 25 years that there's been a focus on the original meaning of provisions, and our understanding of the 14th Amendment has grown tremendously in this period. But, but we, we can't catch up. We, we should have had hundreds of years of work on these provisions so that we understand what, what they mean. And the tragedy of non-originals that, prevented that from happening. We're beginning to get there, but, but it's, we're not there yet. Um, well, I guess one thing I'll just respond to is the suggestion that um, some folks who would consider themselves originalists are trying to you know, read the Constitution abstractly just to allow for judicial updating. I mean, I think that, you know, you look at the Constitution, it's clear that some provisions are very precise in their guidance, and others use much more general language. I don't think that's an accident. The Constitution includes many general provisions because the framers, you know, wanted the Constitution to be an enduring document that could adapt as circumstances and context changed. And so I think that just leads to the question of, you know, what beyond the text and the structure and the history of the Constitution are appropriate to look at to provide additional guidance um, to interpret those provisions. I mean, going back to the recess appointments case, I think, you know, Justice Breyer looked at the text and the structure and the history, and he looked at the functional role the clause plays in the Constitution. And then he found that, uh, you know, then he also looked at kind of subsequent history and felt that was consistent um, with the meaning of the clause as he understood it. And so I guess to me, this just goes back to the question of what under original methods, originalism are the appropriate tools to use? And as you say, that's obviously not the focus of this work, but I think that'll be really helpful in elucidating kind of where the space is between original methods, originalism, and originalism as practiced by occasionally people like Justice Breyer, Jack Balkin, and others. Roger? Well, I would just ask a couple of questions <clears throat> of our authors, uh, namely, um, you speak of supermajoritarianism. Uh, as the method by which um, we can bring ourselves together except for the outliers on left and right. Uh, but um, that sounds like the mushy middle on one hand. And on the other hand, it suggests that there are a lot of libertarians on the right, so to speak, and, and um, uh, socialists on the left. And I don't know what, how you bring those two together. A little bit of socialism, is that the, the way we do it? And secondly, I would ask you uh, on that methodological point that I made toward the end, um, we've been living for 75 years and, and more with Caroline Products' um, hocus pocus. Is that something that you would like to see jettisoned? Because I can't imagine that the framers distinguish between fundamental and non-fundamental rights and different levels of judicial review, four levels in some cases. It just would have... It, it does, that the framers thought that that's how judges should go about their work, just strange credulity. So where would you come out on that as well? Well, we, we certainly don't think that there's some uh, external policy argument of the sort that Caroline Products made for saying that certain freedoms are preferred and others are not. The, our, our position is you, you look at the Constitution, you look at the particular clauses, and you come to conclusions about those. You don't bring in some external New Deal type of, of, of understanding of it. So, so if that's what Caroline Products um, stands for, we reject it. What goes in its place is a difficult question. So I, I think John and I disagree about some questions about the meaning of the 14th Amendment. Um, 
and and about you know and and most originalists there's a lot of disagreements about exactly what the meanings of the clauses are i don't think you can give a standard i'm not let's put it this way i'm not willing or or prepared to give a standard answer to to what the general approach is i think constitutional provisions at the time of the bill of rights had a certain look to them and it was an underlying philosophy there that was different than the the understanding at the time of the 14th amendment and different at the time of the of the 16th amendment so i don't think there is a a single principle that can can easily be used to describe the constitution it's a combination of views that have been acted over time together to mesh to uh to become a good constitution john you are we can open up for why don't we go to yeah. questions uh so we're open up for questions uh <laughs> You can uh, raise your hand and I will send a mic to you. Uh, down here in the front, please. Or you can, uh, you can either choose to speak anonymously or give us a name and affiliation. I'm a big believer in anonymous speech, so <laughs> if, you, if you'd like to go under a Roman appellation or something like that. Just not the Supreme I think I'll yeah. remain anonymous because probably most of you won't even like my question. <laughs> <laughs> um, would an originalist interpretation of the first 13 words of the Second Amendment mean that no one has a right to a gun except if you are a member of a militia you don't want to feel that well i i don't think so i mean i think the con obviously that's uh, the consensus actually of the original scholar let me answer that in two ways consensus the original scholarship and that actually has been part of the golden age of originalism in some sense has been on both the left and the right that there is an individual right to own a gun. This, the beginning of the interest was actually uh, not by a, a conservative scholar, but Sandy Levinson, who's hardly a conservative. The original meaning of Second Amendment, that's what I'm asking. Yes, the original, that's what he, that's what he looked at, the original meaning. There's been a tremendous uh, focus on that. Uh, and I think that Justice Scalia makes a very good argument uh, in the uh, co Constitution that the text of the Second Amendment guarantees an individual right that the preamble does not limit the operative clause. He also uses, incidentally, an original methods. He says that the general view is that a uh, preamble does not limit an operative clause. And so that's a, that's a good example of the use of an original method, that it doesn't limit, in this sense, the right of the people to keep and bear arms. So it's, so it's not the case. He, he points out that's not grammatically the case. And using an original method of interpretation, the relation of a preamble to an operative clause, unless that operative clause itself is ambiguous, he does not think that a preamble limits that. So I think, I think we're in agreement on that, that the, that the original meaning of the Second Amendment inco incorporates or holds an individual right to, own, to hold a gun. Yeah, just to restate uh, John's last point, the prefatory clause <clears throat> sets forth a sufficient condition, not a necessary condition. So from a purely textualist point of view, um, it seems to me that the decision was right. Our analogy would be the, the promote useful science and the arts part of the copyrights clause. It's a sufficient condition, but not necessary. You, you don't own a copyright only on something that promotes useful science and the arts. So. 
And I'll just add, unsurprisingly, I am not in agreement with everyone else up here. <laughs> and in the full disclosure, I helped represent the District of Columbia in the Heller case. And so I'll just commend everyone to Justice Stevens' dissent in that case that I think presented a very compelling text and history argument that the Second Amendment, even while providing an individual right, was an individual right in furtherance of militias. It was really a federalism provision. And if you look at the history of the clause and why the framers adopted it, um, it's very clear that's what they were doing. But, you know, that's... But I think we can all agree that Heller is a cavalcade of originalism. That is absolutely yes. <laughs> a cavalcade of originalism. Yeah, from both sides. Uh, here. My name is Hermes Levy. I have just two questions. Uh, one is about uh, the unconstitutional precedent. If they are not killing the Constitution in its living aspect, if you consider that since it, its inception, the way people lived it is the living aspect of the Constitution. Uh, things like uh, uh, the Leviathan government, the Obamacare, and overregulations doesn't this element kill the Constitution in its living aspect? That's my first question. Uh, it's, I'm, uh, are you the existence of things that are unconstitutional? Is that what you mean? Uh, I'm talking about the the unprecedented, the unconstitutional precedent that have existed since now, uh, and the uh, elements that kill the constitution in its living aspect. Well, I so so if I can restate what I understand the the, the question to be, you're you're saying. Don't the sort of non-originalist precedents, first of all, give the Constitution a sort of living aspect to it, a living constitutional aspect to it, and does, does that undermine originalism? I, I, I take it that that's the, 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 the question. Um, and I, I would say, uh, look, the 20th century is, was a century of non-originalism in the main, and there's lots of non-originalist precedents from that time period, and, and people, you know, as I've pointed out on lots of occasions, people are in jail for, you know, violating unconstitutional statutes based on the original meaning, at least, all the time. There, 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 there are lots of them. So yes, we, we certainly live in a, in a world where um, there's lots of, of non-originalist precedents. So we, we have a, a, a section of, but, but, but we don't think that that's, you know, the end of the story. So the uh, different originalists have different views about precedent. Um, some originalists would, would say that no precedents, no, no, no non-originalist precedents ought to be followed. Other originalists sort of have a different perspective and think that virtually all of them should be. We have a kind of intermediate approach, which, which thinks that um, you, you look at precedents, there's a, a limited number of justifications that can be provided for, for precedents. So, so, so one we would follow are ones that we regard as called entrenched precedents, things that are so widely supported today that they have the kind of support comparable to um, uh, a, a, a constitutional amendment. So if one concluded, and I'm not concluding this, but if one concluded that, that Griswold was a, a non-originalist precedent, we still think that that Griswold would be should be followed as a precedent because it has such widespread support. So we have a sort of intermediate approach. We would have the court overturn a lot of these precedents, but keep some of the other ones. I think there was a question here. Yeah. 
Hi, thank uh, Ken Masugi. Uh, I blog occasionally with uh, the the, the co-authors here uh, on Liberty Law uh, blog, the blog of the Liberty Fund, um, and I'm I'm wondering generally. Uh, 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 P.J. O'Rourke, a great friend of Cato, uh, once said the founding fathers uh, were religious nuts with guns, uh, which exaggerates the case somewhat, but still uh, with the serious point Roger raised about uh, the founders' belief in natural rights. I think once you remove their, that intent and that world that they lived in, both religious, enlightenment, and so on, uh, then you really aren't an originalist any longer. And uh, I would test this with regard to the 13th Amendment. Uh, and uh, you raised problems with the, how to interpret the 14th. Um, and I think the, the problem today is not, certainly does involve race, but prior to the race question, there's the slavery question and the issue of will versus reason there. Um, uh, and uh, one of the unamendable parts of the Constitution does deal with, with slavery. And, and so uh, how do you deal with the unamendable parts of the Constitution? And um, how, uh, the 13th Amendment's focus on slavery, not on race, uh, I, I think is uh, uh, crucial to uh, a, a a uh, truer version of originalism. I'd like uh, uh, Ms. Gorod's interpretation of the 13th as well, which may well be very rich, as Sandy Levinson's is. Well, I mean, I don't think, without kind of getting into a rich discussion of the 13th Amendment, which I think you have to look at in the context of the Reconstruction Amendments as a whole, I think that focusing on those amendments does help kind of express and explain why the Constitution is a progressive document. It's not the same document that was enacted in 1787 when the framers may or may not have been religious nuts with guns. Um, you need to look at the whole Constitution. And I think we also need to remember that the framers in some ways may have created a document um, that was better than they were. That's why the document is, contains not just precise definitions and guidance, but contains more general principles that we can adapt to changing circumstances. Well, Brian, if you're suggesting that the Constitution is a progressive document in the sense of Crowley and other progressives of the early 20th century, all I can say is you read them and Wilson and others, and they rejected categorically the ideas of the founders. They were progressive in the sense that we normally use the word progressivism. And the 14th Amendment and the Civil War members generally were nothing of the kind. They sought to incorporate at last, to complete the Constitution uh, by incorporating at last the grand principles of the Declaration and equality in particular, but equality before the law, not any of the further uh, reaches of equality like equality of opportunity, much less equality of result. And that's so much of the progressive agenda has sought to bring about these two other forms of equality, which are utterly inconsistent with the notion of equality before the law that is captured in Lady Justice being blindfolded. Well, I, I do think we consider the 13th Amendment central to our book in two, indeed two ways. One, it illustrates that the process of constitutionalism is not necessarily done. It's 
it goes through an amendment process. It's this multi-generational project. Moreover, uh, I think we have doubts about how much, how, how at least certain <clears throat> members of the polity would, 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 would they have had to follow the original meaning of the Constitution given that they were excluded. And of course, the absence of a uh, anti-slavery prohibition in the original Constitution really reflects uh, the problems of that, uh, the generation there. So I do think in some sense, the slavery amendment is central to our understanding of originalism. I just want to also say, so there's a lot of, so, so there's a, there's a webcast. So. No, no, I, I, I'm just not used to it because I talk so loudly that people normally, you know, quiet down, will you? Um, they say, um, so, so look, there, there's a tendency and, and, and um, for people, and I, th I think I hear it in Brienne, um, um, although she no doubt disagrees, but, but um, to, to look at constitutional provisions that have, you know, w words in them and they see, you know, so sort of Dworkinian move, they, they seem abstract. That must be their meaning. We don't we don't have the specifics about it. There, it must have been a something of a delegation or you know uh, uh, an enactment of a principle that then we're supposed to implement. That's of course possible, but it's it's way too quick. A lot of constitutional doctrines, and and, and after all, some a lot of these constitutional provisions came from doctrines that that preexisted, common law doctrines or or other like, have a very sort of abstract you know. Um, language to them, but that doesn't mean that they're abstract principles. And so you really got to go look deep into the history before you conclude that something is an abstract principle. So, so people who take one that, that Dworkin liked to, to try to say, cruel and unusual punishment, that's a, a, um, um, an abstract principle. But, but people who've, a lot of people who've looked into the, the, the history there come to the conclusion that that the main the main understanding of it was unusual and unusual meant um, a departure from the pre-existing practices from significant pre-existing practices and a departure that was you know cruel in the sense of being harsher now i'm not saying that that's necessarily right although there, there there's significant evidence from, from from the history the point is that wouldn't be an abstract provision something that looks on its face with when we're sort of ignorant of of, of the history of it can actually to be abstract can actually turn out not to be abstract. And I think a lot of the Constitution is like that. It's referring to pre-existing doctrines. And I think that's one of the debates that, that the, the we're all originalist world that we're in now will see. What are the meaning of these provisions and how abstract are they and how determinate from historical circumstances. And can I just say to that, you know, we of course don't think that you should just look at the text and say, oh, it's general, it's abstract, throw up our hands and we can do whatever we want. That's why we think that one needs to look at the text of the provision at issue, its place in the larger text and structure of the Constitution, its enactment history, and the history that gave rise um, to it. And so it's, it's a rich look at both text and history to try to understand what the meaning of any particular provision is. John? Uh, John Samples, Cato Institute. Uh, I'd like to ask the authors, um, it's been argued, yeah, a lot of the, the argument seems to rely on the amendment process and the goodness of the amendment process or the, the rightness of it or the welfare-producing part of the process uh, as, a, among other things, a way to change things. But it's been argued that the actually Article 5 is deeply flawed 
And the deep flaw is it has two ways to propose and ratify a process, a uh, amendment. Uh, one is through Congress. One goes through Congress. The other is through a process outside of Congress to go through the uh, convention process. And that was designed, presumably, that language was put in there in case Congress was the problem, right? So you have an out, a way of going around Congress to amend the Constitution. But the problem is, the flaw seems to be, for a variety of reasons, uh, the convention process is really a non-starter, right? So, uh, except for the ratification of uh, the 21st Amendment. So, does that bear on your argument about the welfare-producing consequences of this Constitution? I can imagine that it, it goes to the question of, you know, well, normatively, you can imagine a Constitution very much like this one is found, but it has to be amended to, to deal with the problems of Article 5. Uh, but this particular Constitution seems, in fact, to be biased away from uh, any kind of non-congressional amendments and toward a centralizing tendency. Now, before the author's answer, I should say that all of these arguments I have made are not original to me. They were all made by Michael Rappaport in a <laughs> Cato policy analysis about Article 5. Which is available outside, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, who is that guy? <laughs> we don't agree with that at all. No, um, so I, I think um, the, the fact that the, the convention process for amending the Constitution does not work today is a serious problem. And it, and it means basically that Congress has a veto and um, on, on amendments and therefore all the things, and there are some very popular things like balanced budget amendments, line item vetoes, term limits that um, might get enacted, don't get enacted. And there's other things which are maybe not so popular, but I, I'd like to see passed, uh, don't have a chance either. Um, so, but I actually think um, this is due to non-originalism in, in a way. Um, I've got another article. I've got, had, had one article um, making that argument. I have another article w w which says basically that the, the, we can have, that the Constitution requires, allows, let's put it that way, authorizes a limited convention. So the states can apply for a convention that would be limited to a single subject, that's constitutional. In fact, I, I believe that the states can apply for a convention limited to deciding whether to enact a specifically worded amendment, you know, um, decide whether or not to propose that. Um, what, what's basically happened is during the 20th century, a lot of people who don't want to see those kind of amendments, I'm not, I, I don't mean to, to suggest that they're, they're being dishonest, but, but it, it turns out those people didn't want to see amendments by, uh, proposed through this constitutional amendment process, the convention process, also argued, oh, by the way, runaway conventions that can do anything um, are constitutional. So there's no limits on them. So it just so happens to be the case that, you know, the, uh, your, your amendment process really uh, risks runaway conventions, so we should never use it. So I think if people had recognized the original meaning of the Constitution, which would have limited conventions, um, this constitutional amendment process would actually work. And uh, a big part of the problem today is that people um, don't, re the, uh, you know, that there is no recognition and no assurance that if this amendment process were to be employed, that we wouldn't have a runaway convention and it wouldn't be followed. Um, uh, and I, I think that's unfortunate. But uh, in the end, I, I, I want to put a lot of the blame on non-originalism. 
Uh, could I just make a quick point in response to Mike here? The, um, the, the, the authors put uh, emphasize the role of the judiciary usurping the constitutional amendment process as a cardinal reason for its having um, fallen into disuse. Um, I submit that there is a much uh, uh, more important reason, namely that we have become, over the course especially of the second half of the 20th century and into the 21st, a deeply divided country. So the idea that you're going to get a supermajority around almost any issue today um, is just uh, beyond, uh, beyond credulity. I just think historically we've often been a deeply divided country. People were deeply divided about uh, at the time when uh, ultimately they were able to pass the um, uh, 16th and 17th amendments. There was a big divisions in the country. So I think we, I just think it's not the case that we're more divided than we ever have been in the country. Well, those progressive amendments were passed in the heyday of progressivism, so I'm not sure that we were that deeply divided at that precise point in time, namely 1912, 13. But, but it's, it's more than um, whether we're deeply divided. The question is, are there incentives to compromise? Right? So, so we're always divided, or we're often divided. The question is, are there incentives to compromise? And one of the, so, so the, uh, much of the 19th century was about great compromises and, and, and the like that were, were necessary. And what happens when you have the, the, the court basically making these decisions is people put all of their hope in getting justices on the court who will then do what they want and getting the, the, not the half a loaf, but the whole loaf. Under a constitutional amendment process, you've got to compromise in order to get things that, that actually get the support of, of, of the whole country. And um, I think we've lost the art and the expectation of getting compromises because the constitutional amendment process is gone. Just to take one example of the New Deal, I don't think you would have gotten the end of federalism, which the New Deal tried to, tried to do judicially through a constitutional amendment process, and that's why the Roosevelt administration didn't try to pursue it. You would have gotten a compromise, some more national power over economic regulation, but not unlimited national power. And you start in the New Deal, and you move on and on and on, and, and the, the art of compromise, which would bring us together, has been lost because we go through non-originalism, another part of the tragedy of non-originalism. Well, actually, that brings us out of time right now, so I'd like everyone to thank our panel here.